Jewish mob. Now the defense will claim a technicality in this story, saying that Jesus wasn't actually killed on the cross. They will actually quote a text from the book of Matthew saying that Jesus, while on the cross, cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and then he gave up his spirit. The defence will allege that this is not a murder, therefore, and that Jesus willingly laid down his life for the purpose of saving people from their sins. And if that fails, ladies and gentlemen, the defence will go on to an attempt to change the focus of this trial away from the four co-accused of pirate, pirate, Pilate, Herod, the Romans and the angry Jewish mob. If we add a pirate into this story, it just really messes it up. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. Can we expel like this member of the jury? (laughs) And if that fails, ladies and gentlemen, the prosecution will attempt to change the focus of this trial away from the four co-accused of Herod, Pilate, the Romans and the angry Jewish mob onto Father God claiming that it was actually God who killed Jesus. And they will quote from the book of Genesis chapter 22 and the story of the lamb on Mount Moriah. And and there may even be some truth in terms of that in the spirit realm, but we are dealing with real world facts here. Jesus Christ lived, that is fact. Jesus Christ was murdered, that is also fact. My job as the prosecutor is to prove to you that Jesus Christ was murdered by the co-accused. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is fact. Now, before I call witnesses, I want to talk to you about each witness that I will call and each of the co-accused so that you'll have some background information on each one. So let's start with the victim. Jesus Christ, Jewish male, aged 33, carpenter, rabbi, son of Mary and Joseph, controversial figure, controversy surrounded his conception and his birth, controversy surrounded his life. Mary, his mother, claimed that she was overshadowed by God and that God had made her pregnant and that she was a virgin at the time of conception and at the time of his birth. Born in Bethlehem, lived as a toddler in Egypt, grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was so-called as it was derived from the Hebraic term for branch and there is a messianic prophecy in the writings of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1 that says from Jesse's root a branch will bear fruit. The population of Nazareth at the time that Jesus was growing up was about 400. We're going to take you there in this new clip and this clip please watch. Hinted at in the Gospels and well believed by historians is the conviction that Nazareth must have been a small village during the days of Jesus. Its name means watchtower or branch, and though it was located by a major trade route, it was separated from that route by steep hills and a valley. Today, Nazareth is a bustling city filled with ancient churches that draw tourists. But its prominence did not begin until after the life of Christ, and indeed, because of it. The city enjoys Byzantine and medieval history in buildings that were built to honor events in the life of Jesus. Yet during Christ's life, the city would have had a population of only a few hundred. Highlighted by a cynical comment from Nathaniel in John chapter 1 was the surprise that a major religious figure or anyone of importance could have come from that city. Before 2009, not much was known about the Nazareth of the first century. Nazareth is more occupied today than it was then, making excavations tedious. 
The main archaeology of the city was involved in family tombs and a controversial Roman inscription that may be a Roman response to stories about resurrection of the dead. Recently, however, an excavation was carried out beside the Church of the Annunciation. This dig uncovered the first first-century home known there. The home consisted of two rooms and a courtyard containing a cistern for collecting rainwater and the remains of clay and chalk pottery. Interestingly, this house also contained a hidden storage pit used as a place to hide valuables from the invading Roman soldiers. Findings at Nazareth support the idea that it was a very small village and that it became well known only because of its connection with Jesus Christ. Excavations are few and far between, but with patience, the heights of Nazareth may yet reveal more secrets. Jesus had brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, not the other Judas, uh, and Simon and several other unnamed sisters. He was lost by his parents when he was 12, with child services possibly involved, but we aren't sure. At 30, Jesus left being a carpenter and became a teacher. Controversy followed him wherever he went. As he taught, he collected a motley bunch of people that followed him. At times, this motley bunch numbered 12. At times, it numbered several thousand. And then Jesus would make some offensive statement and the numbers would go back to the long-suffering 12. These 12 men have claimed that Jesus walked on water, healed the sick, fed the multitudes, raised the dead. And in fact, I can read a statement from one of Christ's followers, Paul, in Acts 10 and verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, and God was with him. Jesus also made some pretty outrageous claims. He claimed that he was the Son of God. In fact, in every one of Jesus' recorded prayers, he addresses God as Father. He claimed that he was here on a mission from God. He claimed that he knew he was going to be killed. He claimed that he would rise from the dead. He claimed that his kingdom would last longer than the Roman Empire. And it was these kind of claims, I will show you, was the reason he was killed. Christ was a troublemaker, a usurper of the Roman Empire, a threat to the Jewish religious leaders of the day. I want to talk about the Romans. The Roman Empire was the post-Roman Republic period of the ancient Roman civilization. Characterised by government headed by emperors and large territorial holdings in the Mediterranean Sea, in Europe, in Asia and in Africa. The city of Rome at the time of Christ was the largest city in the world and was so 100 years BC to 400 years after Christ. With Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, becoming the largest around AD 500. The Roman Empire's population grew to an estimated 50 to 90 million inhabitants, which was about 25% of the world's population at the time. The 500-year-old uh, empire was severely destabilised in a series of civil wars and political conflict, during which Julius Caesar was appointed as a perpetual dictator and then assassinated in 44 BC. Civil wars and executions continued, culminating in the victory of Octavian, Caesar's adopted son over Mark Anthony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Achaeum in 31 BC. In 63 BC, so 63 years before Christ, Rome conquered Israel and set themselves up as the occupying force. They allowed the Jews to continue to operate their normal life and their religion, but installed Roman leaders to control their people. 
At the time of Jesus' murder, Pilate was the ruling governor and Herod Antipas was the ruling governor of Galilee and Perea. These Roman governors were known for their brutality. In fact, the governor before Pilate was Herod's brother Archelaus and he was so brutal in his exercise of power that the Roman Senate replaced him with Pilate. We're going to watch a clip, which is, I think is a documentary, which shows a little bit about the brutality of Rome. Let's watch the screens. so nobody actually died. <laughs> now, that was a documentary by the uh, famed journalist Maximus. <laughs> Let's talk about pirate... Pirate. <laughs> <laughs> it says pilot here, but I just read pirate. Let's talk about pilot and Herod. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. He lived for 59 years and was 20, uh, and was 20 years old when, when our victim, Jesus Christ, was murdered. He ruled Galilee and Perea and was responsible for the building of the city Tiberias. Antipas divorced his wife, Phasaelus, and married Herodias, who had formerly been married to his half-brother, Herod II. John the Baptist, a close associate 
of our victim, Jesus Christ, condemned the marriage. And it was this condemnation that led to Antipas beheading John the Baptist. And I make note of this to establish a pattern of Herod being a brutal murderer. Pilate, also known as Pontius Pilate, was equally brutal, was the Roman governor of Judea for, the year, for 10 years between 26 and 36 AD. He was known for his brutality and ultimately was replaced for his overly harsh suppression of a Samaritan uprising. Again, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we are establishing a pattern of violence here and cruelty that led this man to be complicit in the murder of Jesus Christ. Now, I will say that initially Pilate lobbies the Jewish crowd for Jesus to be released and even washes his hands in front of the crowd and says that he will not be held accountable for the life of Jesus Christ. But then the assembled crowd shout out that the blood of Jesus can be on them and be on their children. We will talk about the crowd next, but let's have a look at this clip on Pilate. On the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, there is an ancient secret, as old as the birth of Christianity. Here in Caesarea, the majestic Roman port, a fatal determination changed history. The Roman governor based here, Pontius Pilate, was called on to decide the fate of Jesus of Nazareth. He would be a harsh judge. He was a brutal, uh, we hear about sort of massacres and, and uh, the bloodshed that uh, was uh, connected to the time that he had uh, the rule over uh, uh, Judea. He was not a nice person. We have come to the amphitheater in Caesarea with Dr. Shimon Gibson, an archaeologist who has spent more than 20 years conducting excavations in the Holy Land. Here in 1961, archaeologists discovered proof of Pilate's existence. You wouldn't really sort of think that at this spot, under this wooden stack, uh, this inscription was found, a Latin inscription mentioning uh, Pontius Pilate. But this was one of those pivotal moments which changes everything because suddenly Pontius Pilate comes out of this written inscription. It's not just this figure in the Gospels. The Israel Museum here in Jerusalem is a treasure house of artifacts from the first century. To visit here as a religious pilgrim or an historian is to discover crucial evidence of the end of Jesus' life. The left side of the Pilate stone was chiseled away to fit into the theater, but the inscription is clear. Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, Perfectus Judea, a stone thought to commemorate a lighthouse dedicated to the emperor Tiberius. It was a wow moment because first of all, this is the only physical object from the time of Pilate which has his name. The Gospel of Luke tells the story. Pilate was called to Jerusalem amid the uproar over the ministry of Jesus, considered a rebel leading a messianic movement. Are you the king of the Jews, Pilate asks in the scripture, and he answered them, you have said so. He probably thought of Jesus as a minor rebel, uh, of the kind of which he saw many in his governorship. The ornate ossuary next to the Pilate stone is thought to belong to Josephus Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, and a pivotal figure in the trial of Jesus. Dr. Gibson's excavations next to the Tower of David Museum have uncovered further evidence of Pilate's time in Jerusalem. Based on the Gospels and writings from the period, the archaeologist imagines Pilate's judgment. He decides to make an example of Jesus 
and to have him crucified. And I don't think he would have uh, had a sleepless night about, over it. There are no records of Pilate's last days or his burial place. History records that he was called back to Rome to account for the brutality of his rule. Pilate may have ended the life of Jesus, but for the faithful, this crucial episode marks just the beginning. David Gregory, CNN, Caesarea, Israel. Let's talk about the crowd. There were two crowds in the story of Jesus' murder. And often people get them confused and think it was the same crowd. And then they say things like how quickly and how fickle the crowd changed. But ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I will, sh I will show you that there were two different crowds. Apart from the fact that the word crowd is used in both contexts of the story, when Jesus first came into Jerusalem riding a donkey, one crowd took off their jackets, took palm trees and lay it laid it down and said, Hosanna, glory to the King. Hosanna to the Son of David. They worshipped Him. And then there's the crowd at the time of Christ's crucifixion which I believe was a hired crowd of Jewish religious leaders. Using Matthew's gospel, the crowd shouted, blessed is he who comes in the Lord, and are referred to collectively as the daughter of Zion, later referred to simply in Matthew's gospel as the people. They were regular average citizens opposed to the Roman Empire and looking for Jesus to set up his kingdom. The Bible does say in Luke 19 and verse 39 that there were some of the Pharisees were in the crowd. So the seeds of the crowd that crucified Christ were in the crowd that were worshipping Jesus but weren't actually worshipping Him. Next we read that the chief priests and the elders arrived at the temple and attempted to question Jesus' authority. Their goal was to take Jesus down a notch in the eyes of the crowd that were worshipping Him and adoring Him. Next we read in Matthew 21 verse 45 that the chief priests and the Pharisees witnessed Jesus teaching parables and they wanted to arrest him but they, they feared the crowd because the crowd loved Jesus so much and that they knew that there would be a right if they did indeed arrest him. Next they tried to test him, ask him questions about Caesar. And in Luke 21 verse 16 to 17 that didn't work either and his population, popularity with the crowd intensified even more. But then the other crowd began to plot and plan. In Matthew 26, 3 and 4, we read that the chief priests and the elders gathered together and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Why the stealth? Because they knew that the crowd would rise up and, and have retribution. In Matthew 26 and verse 47, when Judas arrived to betray him in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that he arrived with a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. This is the crowd. This is the angry Jewish mob that the prosecution will show was responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Now we read in Matthew 27 and verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. All the indications are that this refers to the crowd of these fellow elders, priests, scribes and Pharisees 
yelling out, let him be crucified and release Barabbas. As we wrap this up, let's talk about Judas for a moment. Judas was called Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was a city called Kiroth. It's a city 15 miles south of Hebron in Israel. And the Hebrew word Iscariot means a man of the village of Kiroth. But ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I will actually say that's not the case. A second fact is that Iscariot identifies Judas as a member of the Sakari. This was a cadre of assassins of, uh, among the Jewish rebels intent on driving out Roman, the Romans out of Israel. He was a guerrilla terrorist that would attack the Roman soldiers. Some hailed Judas as a hero. As it was his actions that triggered the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus, which is ultimately the event that saves the world. You may not be sitting here worshipping Jesus had not Judas done his work. So is he a hero or is he a villain? He was numbered amongst the 12 that were personally chosen by Jesus. According to Mark 6 and verse 7, the 12 disciples were all sent out two by two and they returned amazed that the demons were subject to them in the name of the Christ. Judas performed miracles. He was a treasurer of Jesus, a position he held without integrity. He was a complainer about the way some people spent money, making a big fuss about the woman with the alabaster box, saying the money would have been better spent on the poor. He portrays Jesus with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. Later he feels remorse and he takes the silver back to the chief priests and the elders, uh, the scribes, and he throws the 30 pieces of silver on the ground and says that he's made a mistake, that he has betrayed an innocent man. They say, what is that to us? And Judas goes out and commits suicide. Judas throughout time is often portrayed in images with red hair. If we go to the next video, let's go to the next clip, the next photo. Judas is often portrayed in images with red hair as according to tradition, red-haired people were dodgy. Evil people. Thankfully these days, people with red hair are now to be known to be higher intelligence yes. and much better looking than the general population. Yes. And there's a list of other things here that I could go on with about how redhead people are better, but time doesn't allow me. As a worship team come up, I want to talk about the soldier at the bottom of the cross that said he was the Christ. In Matthew 27, the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him and they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. Then they spat on him and they took the staff and they struck him in the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put on his own, own clothes, and they led him away to be crucified. After the crucifixion, in verse 54, when the centurion and those who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, 
surely he was the son of God. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, as we examine the murder of Christ, we must also examine the claims that Jesus made that he was the son of God and that he was here to save mankind from their sins. These soldiers were ordered to brutalise Jesus Christ and nail him into the cross, nail him to the cross, came to the conclusion as they witnessed his death that indeed he was the Christ. And that leads us to the confrontational thought. What do you or I do with the claims of Jesus? In our minds, is Jesus just a man who was murdered? Or was Jesus the Son of God who died for your sins and for mine? As every head's bowed, every eye's closed, the question is, how do you answer that question to you personally right now? Who is Jesus? Is he just a historical figure? Is Jesus a God that other people serve? Is Jesus just one of the suite of gods that are on offer? Or to you, is Jesus Christ your saviour? Easter is about knowing Yes, Jesus was murdered. Yes, Jesus laid down his life. Yes, Father God sacrificed Jesus. All three of those statements are true. But he did it so you and I can pray a sinner's prayer, have faith in him. And when we pass from this life to the next, We go to heaven. We miss out on eternal damnation and separation from God. As every head's bowed, every eye's closed, I don't know everybody here this morning. I don't know where you are with God, but I want to give you the opportunity this morning to accept Christ as your Lord and Saviour. Is there anybody here this morning that would raise their hand and say, Peter, pray for me. I need to pray that prayer. I need to pray the sinner's prayer and say, Jesus, come into my life. I need you as my Lord and my Saviour this morning. Father, we thank You for the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You the fact that, for the fact that He didn't stay dead, but He rose three days later. Father, I thank You, the Lord, that we, claim, that we serve a risen Saviour. Lord, I thank You that You are here present with us this morning. It is well with our soul. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.